RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 321, Past Tense, Parts 1 and 2. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode or two of Star Trek, taking it apart for ideas and ideals, and seeing whether the whole thing holds up today. This week, past tense, parts one and two, the ones where Cisco, Dax, and Bashir land in an ugly 21st century, while Kira and O'Brien pop in and out of time. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first... But first... I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Can I address something here really quickly? Please. A few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, I don't know. Time is time is weird for me. Time is fleeting. Time is, uh, it's astounding, actually, <laughs> uh, how a fleeting time is. Madness. Yeah, we'll get to that. Um, so a few weeks ago, somebody said that they always think that I'm being incredibly sarcastic when I say... We would love to hear your voice. Do, 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 is just because you have that sound? Is that it? It's heartfelt and it's sincere. If you want to call in and leave us a message, that'd be great. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Uh, we love it. That's all I'm saying. And, and with that, because I just wanted to lay that rumor to rest. I wanted to dispel that myth that I don't mean it when I say it. Uh, because I, because I totally mean that it would be the best thing ever if you called in. Anyway, uh, enough about that. Why don't we talk about uh, Why don't we talk about matters trivial, Mister Champion? Cool. Here we go. Trivia for past tense parts one and two. Both of those parts owe their story credit to Ira Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf. Now, the teleplay for part one is credited to Robert Hewitt Wolf. Teleplay for part two is credited to Ira and Rene Echeverria. So, as you may know, or as you may have guessed, this episode, this series of episodes, was a sincere attempt to do a show about an issue inspired by real world experiences living in the 90s, as these writers were, and you can trace back at least part of it to Ira observing people ignoring the homeless in and around Los Angeles, just letting them fade into the background. Robert crafted a story originally in which Cisco would have found himself back in time homeless, and the more stories he told about being from the future, the more people around him would have thought he was mentally unstable. Part one was directed by Reza Badi and we discussed his first DS9 episode, Civil Defense, and how he had worked on many classic genre shows up to Star Trek, and he has a few more DS9 episodes to come. Part 2 was directed by Jonathan Frakes, and, well, we don't really need to reintroduce him here. 
Hey, uh, Aaron Harvey points out the toy seen in one of the shots of uh, a child playing in the Sanctuary District. It's a Robotech Veritech toy. You know, it's an airplane. It's actually a robot guy, uh, not to be confused with any other transforming or vehicular-based robot guys. Let's talk about guest stars because there are a lot here. Wealthy industrialist Brenner is played by Jim Metzler. You may have seen Jim prior to this DS9 episode in North and South Book 1 and Book 2. He also turns up in L.A. Confidential and the TV movie Apollo 11 as astronaut Michael Collins. This two-parter is his only Trek credit. B.C. Biddle is played by Frank Military. You may have seen him in the Oliver Stone movie The Doors or maybe in The X-Files once, but his acting credits run a little shorter than you may think. That's because Frank has been working extensively as a writer and producer on some major shows. NCIS, Jericho, NCIS Los Angeles. He keeps pretty busy with that, even dropping in as a director from time to time, too. Lee, the somewhat sympathetic administrator, is played by Tina Lifford. She got her start in the 80s on a number of cop shows, Hill Street Blues, Cagney and Lacey, even a couple of appearances on T.J. Hooker. That led to recurring roles in a number of places, even a series lead role on the short-lived South Central. Of course, we have Trek veteran Clint Howard appearing here in Part 2 as Grady. We know Clint from appearing in TOS as Baylock from being a lead on Gentle Ben, and from literally everything helmed by Ron Howard. Deborah Van Valkenburg plays Detective Preston. Now, surely you remember her as Jackie, one of Ted Knight's daughters on Too Close for Comfort. Many TV and film appearances followed, and although this is her only Trek appearance, you can catch her in Free Enterprise, alongside Bill Shatner, where she plays Marlena. I'll let you figure out where they got that name. Michael Webb is played by Bill Smitrovich. He may look familiar to you. He's been in movies like November Man with Pierce Brosnan, as well as Ted and Ted 2. He's probably best known to TV audiences, though, as the dad, Drew Thatcher, on Life Goes On. That show had just been off the air for about a year after a very successful run by the time this episode of DS9 aired. Finally, Vin is played by Dick Miller. There are so many times on Mission Log when we have talked about a that-guy actor. You know the type. You've seen him on screen and you go, hey, wait, he's, he's that guy because you've seen him in a million things. Now, you have to start in 1955 to add up Dick's nearly 200 professional acting credits. You've seen him all over the place in TV and film. And in fact, we saw him once before on Star Trek in The Big Goodbye, where he was the vendor at the newspaper stand. If you want a retrospective on him, his work, and what makes him a that guy, you can catch a great documentary from 2014 called appropriately That Guy Dick Miller. Dick passed away in January of 2019. Five years from now, and five minutes ago, let us recap past tense. Prologue. DS9 senior staff is on the Defiant, headed to Earth to brief Starfleet on current haps in the Gamma Quadrant. Sisko also plans to visit his sister, though he's a bit early, like a few hundred years. Something went wrong in the transport, and Sisko, Bashir, and Dax have landed in an earlier, more police statey San Francisco. The year is 2024. Luckily, they didn't all land in one place for some reason. 
bag for vagrancy with no identification, Cisco and Bashir are placed under arrest while Jadzia escapes attention. Act 1. Well, she doesn't catch the cop's attention, though a handsome, well-to-do citizen does see her. He assumes she's been mugged, what with having no ID. The stranger, Chris Brenner, says she can use the terminal in his office to order another ID and transit cards. Things are not going as well for Cisco and Bashir. They're being booked into San Francisco's Sanctuary District A. It's terrible. People jammed in, no money, no jobs. They're not criminals. They just have nothing. Cisco says districts like these in major cities across the U.S. are among the worst mistakes in Earth's history. Act 2. Jadzia's got a new ID card ordered. Chris Brenner is a bit surprised that Jadzia doesn't know who he is. Chris Brenner, the Chris Brenner, founder of AOL but more futury. Sensing she should know who he is and be impressed, Jadzia pretends to know who he is and acts impressed. Jadzia has told Brenner about Cisco and Bashir, though neither has any clue how to find them. In the sanctuary district, processing for Cisco and Bashir is not going smoothly. There's no record of either of them. It's like they don't exist. Their arresting officer, Vin, gives them a stack of papers to fill out. As far as he's concerned, they're no longer his concern. If you've been wondering what's been happening on the Defiant, they've been wondering what happened to the away team. They know that the trio didn't materialize as expected, though O'Brien's figured something out. They probably beamed to where they were supposed to be, but not when. He knows they went back in time, though not exactly how far back. Centuries is his closest guess. Back in the district, Cisco and Bashir are getting nowhere with the bureaucracy. They got bigger problems, though, or they will soon. Glancing at calendar, Cisco sees that he and the doctor have landed a few days ahead of the Bell Riots, one of the most violent civil disturbances in the 21st century. And it happened right here. Or it will. And if they don't get out, they'll be in the middle of it. Act 3. Here's how it's going to go. Sanctuary residents will take hostages and take over. Government troops will come in to restore order, and hundreds of sanctuary residents will be killed. Bashir knows they can't do anything to stop it. To do so might mess with the timeline. While Cisco hates that hundreds will die, the riots do lead to better days. Gabriel Bell, the guy after whom the riots are named, will keep the hostages alive. He'll sacrifice his life to save them. Outrage over his death and the deaths of the other residents will change public opinion of the sanctuaries, leading to their closure. Things get better though they still have to get worse first. So no warning anybody about anything. Finally meeting with a social worker, she doesn't think Cisco and Bashir are dims. Yeah, this is when we learn that there are three types in the sanctuaries. Dims, sick people who need medical help but for whom no such help is available. Gimmies, healthy people looking for work for whom no work is available. And ghosts, people who don't fit in and prey on the other residents. With no ID and no way to contact their friend, the social worker says they'll have to stay in the district. It's the law. She gives them food vouchers, tells them they can stay in any building, and advises them to give district security a wide berth. They just had their pay cut, and they're not happy. Back in Brenner's office, Jadzia keeps trying to contact Cisco and Bashir via communicator. 
With no place to go, Brenner gets Stax a room for a few nights and invites her to a party he's throwing tomorrow night. Her and her friends. Assuming she can find them. Dax agrees. In the district, Sisko and Bashir can find no place to sleep. Plenty of buildings, but each barred to them by other residents. Bashir's growing more and more frustrated. Not by their plight, but by the plight of those around them. There is no need medically that all these people should have to live like this. If people only cared. Sisko says it. Not that they don't care. But the problems are so big, society just gave up. Bashir thinks that that's worse. If people hated the sanctuary residents, he'd get that. But just forgetting how to care? That he can't understand. He also can't help wondering how far he and his 24th century compatriots are from these 21st century citizens. If something disastrous happened to the Federation, if they got frightened enough or desperate enough, would they stay true to their ideals? Or would they revert to these 21st century counterparts? Sisko says he doesn't know what would happen, though, as a Starfleet officer, it's his job to make sure they never have to find out. Sisko and Bashir happen across a fight, a bunch of ghosts beating up someone else. After a short conversation, the Starfleet officers keep walking. Act 4. The next day, Sisko and Bashir bargain their way into a building, looking for roof access. It costs them their clothes, though, having traded with some residents, they'll likely fit in better now. They don't make the roof, though. They meet a man and his injured son. Bashir puts his medical ability to work. The kid'll be fine. And Sisko and Bashir have made a new friend. The kid's dad, Webb. He's disappointed in his new friends, though. Their refusal to organize, to get involved. They'll never get out of here if they don't do that. They know where to find him if they change their minds. Back among the halves, Jadzia's attending Brenner's party. And boy, are his guests disconnected from what's really going on. They all agree that Jadzia's lucky Chris found her, though. If the cops had found her, she might have ended up in a sanctuary district. First, Jadzia's heard of those. Now she thinks she may know where Sisko and Bashir ended up. Brenner will look into it. Back in the district, Sisko goes off to secure dinner when the ghost they'd seen beating up that other resident see and start harassing Bashir. Sisko rushes to his aid, which starts a fight. Another man comes in to break up the fight and ends up stabbed for his trouble. He's dead, which is bad. But the dead man is Gabriel Bell, which is worse. If he's not there to protect the hostages in a couple of days, there's no telling how the unrest will go and how the timeline will be affected. Act 5 Right. Bell wouldn't have died if he hadn't been trying to protect Sisko and Bashir. Sisko decides it's up to them to protect the hostages. Defiant's been working on a plan, by the way. O'Brien thinks they could beam to a few different points in San Francisco's past to locate the missing officers. Starfleet gives the plan a hard no, though when Kira calls to argue the point, there's no Starfleet there with which to argue. I guess we know how messed up the timeline can get. Why wasn't Defiant affected? Dut, 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 dut. The point is, as of now, the Defiant and its crew are all that's left of Starfleet. Back in time, back in the district, Sisko and Bashir have gone back to their friend Webb, the kid's dad who wanted them to organize. He's not looking to cause trouble. He just wants people outside to know what's going on inside. He wants everyone there. Dims, gimmies, even ghosts. The world has to see what's happening. 
Among the haves, Brenner has come through. Jadzia's friends are in the district. It'll take time to get them out, though Brenner assures her that they're safe. That's what the sanctuaries are for, to keep people safe. But if that's all they're for, asked Jadzia, why are there walls around them? Back in the district, stuff's popping off a bit early. A fight between a guard and a dim has led to a riot. Sisko gets to the scene in time to stop the residents from killing the guard. He ushers him inside, protecting him. Inside, he finds the ghost who had beaten Bashir, the ones who killed Bell, holding lots of hostages. Sisko will play along for now, ushering the hostages into the back room. He also identifies himself to the leader of the ghosts. The name's Bell, he says. Gabriel Bell. Part 2. Prologue. The leader of the ghosts, B.C., is getting threatening and testy. He says he will kill any hostage that moves, though Sisko points out that the hostages are all they have to bargain with. Among the prisoners, the social worker, Lee, who tried to help Sisko and Bashir, and the two cops who arrested them, Vin and Bernardo. Vin comes in, gun drawn, ready to kill, making an already tense situation a powder keg. Luckily, Sisko's able to get things back under control. As they work to barricade the room, Bashir brings up an interesting point. History says Gabriel Bell dies at the end of this siege. And everyone here thinks Sisko is Gabriel Bell. Act 1. BC's pleased to see the reaction to the siege on the net, though. What did they think was going to happen? Treating people like animals. He doesn't get that. The organizer, Webb, comes in. Sisko puts him to work, finding gimmies to guard the hostages, rather than leaving them to the mercy of the ghosts. Back with the halves, Jadzia is watching what's happening, and decides she has to get into the district to help her friends. On Defiant, with no Starfleet to tell them no, Kira and O'Brien start jumping back and forth in time to find their missing crew persons. They've only got enough raw materials for a few jumps, though. And so they begin... Back in the district, B.C.'s annoyed with all the gimmies replacing the ghosts. Even he has to acknowledge, though, that most of the ghosts can't be trusted. Anyway, he's got a plan. They trade the hostages for credit chips and a flight to freedom. Webb points out that as soon as they lose the hostages, they will be arrested. Sisko says they have to think bigger, to think about more than just themselves. He and Webb say in exchange for the hostages... They should demand the closure of the sanctuaries and the reinstatement of the Federal Employment Act. B.C. thinks they're crazy. Though Cisco says after today, the world won't be able to ignore this situation anymore. After a bit of discussion, it's decided that Webb will hit the net and deliver their demands. No sooner does he begin, the net access is cut. B.C. is angry. No one cares what they have to say. The cop then argues that that's because they're losers. All of them. And they're no match for what's coming. As Webb keeps working on the net, he's contacted by Detective Preston. She's the one who cut the cord, though she's happy to talk to Webb one-on-one. -on -one. She says she needs to see the hostages. Roughly, BC shows her the social worker. He's got five more just like her, he says. And if they don't get what they want, all six will get hurt. Act 2. Detective Preston says she gets it. Preston keeps talking with Webb, while Sisko tries to talk BC into being less of a violent presence. Preston wants to meet with Webb, who takes Sisko along with him. 
It's standard TV hostage negotiation. They want food. She wants a hostage. Of course, what they really want is closure of the sanctuaries and reinstatement of the jobs program. She can't make that promise, but she'll make sure their message gets through. Back inside, the social worker, Lee, is not doing well. She's hypoglycemic. Bashir will keep an eye on that. She tells him a story about a woman she sort of tried to help once. Feeling bad for one of her charges, Lee let a woman who could have been arrested merely slip into the sanctuary. That nearly got Lee fired. Since then, she's kept her head down and done her job. Bashir says it's not her fault that things are the way they are. Everybody says that, says Lee, and nothing ever changes. With a lull in activity, the cop Vin tries to sneak out. Act 2 ends with B.C. drawing down on Vin and Cisco drawing down on B.C. Act 3. Yeah, if B.C. doesn't put his gun down, Cisco will kill him. And of course, B.C. can't just walk away. So Webb makes it easy for him, putting himself between B.C. and the cop. Then Cisco reads Ben the riot act. Do something stupid like that again and I can't protect you, which is what I'm doing, protecting you. What do you want me to do? Care? What good would that do, asks Ben. It would be a start, says Cisco. Webb's kid shows up because things weren't perilous enough, and Bashir is tending to Lee's hypoglycemia. Bernardo shows Bashir a picture of his family. And bad as all of this is, the doctor assures them all that something good will come of it. Back outside, Detective Preston is offering Webb and Cisco none of what they asked for. But they can get reduced charges. Huh? Good, huh? Reduced charges? No? Also, the governor says he will form a committee to look into the sanctuary district and the residents' demands. They have to understand, change takes time. Cisco says she's run out of time, though Preston thinks it's actually the hostage takers that have. The governor won't wait much longer to take action. She really thinks they should take the deal. Menacingly, Webb says if the governor wants to see the hostages again, he'll have to come with a better offer. Confiding to Cisco, Webb says he hopes Preston didn't realize he was bluffing. Wondering what happened to Dax? Yeah, she's found a surprisingly easy way to get into the district undetected. Well, undetected by authorities. She's so intent on the lookout for Cisco and Bashir that she doesn't notice the dim who's following her. Cisco and Bashir are holed up trying to reestablish their connection to the net. History tells them they can do that because it was messages from the hostage takers in the Bell Riots that got the world to reconsider the sanctuaries. Their work is interrupted by the arrival of Dax captured and delivered by some dims. Act 4. Bashir, Jadzia, and Sisko reunite, though Sisko intros himself as Gabriel Bell. Privately, they tell Dax that even if she could get them out, they wouldn't go. The hostages have to be protected. One of the dims who brought Jadzia in took her comm badge. Sisko tells Bashir and Dax to go find it. He'll stay here and protect the hostages. If he can get out, he will. If not, they're to beam back to the future without him. Dax says yes, Julian says no, and Cisco says fine. Julian will help Dax find her comm badge. They do. Then he'll return to Cisco. He does. 
Jadzia, meanwhile, goes back to Brenner. She wants him to reactivate the sanctuary's access to the net so Cisco and the others can get their stories out. He's worried, of course, but in the end relents. Soon the sanctuary residents are broadcasting their stories to the world. Outside, the governor is ordering action against Webb and Bell. They'll move in with force in the morning. Act 5. Kira and O'Brien have been hopping back and forth through time. They've got enough raw material for one more jump. Fingers crossed it's the right one. Shockingly, it is. They make contact with Dax and delay their beam out for 24 hours. Meanwhile, the hostages and hostage takers are starting to chill. Things go back to tense, though, when BC says his recon on the roof has shown more military forces moving in. Cisco has all of the hostages moved to a safer part of the building. Webb sends his son away just as cops storm the building, guns blazing. BC buys it. Webb buys it. Cisco's hit. And the cop, Vin... The cop, Vin, shouts the attacking cops down. He says he can take it from here. And he does. Letting Bashir tend the bell and, eventually, letting them go. He takes Bashir and Bell's ID cards and plants them on a couple of casualties. Sisko asks Vin for one more favor. Tell people the truth of what happened here. He says he'd have done that anyway. Back aboard Defiant, in a restored 24th century, Sisko and Bashir have messed up the timeline a tiny bit. Historical pictures of Gabriel Bell are pretty much pictures of Sisko. As they head back to DS9... Bashir wonders how people in the 21st century could have let things get so bad. I don't know, says Cisco. I wish I had an answer. The end. Man, look, it goes without saying that that's a lot of recap. That's a lot of recap. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, so, yeah, uh, thank you for taking that on because that's a big old recap. Yeah, it's a little bit like, yeah, because I reread it before we started and I realized yeah. now it was a tiny bit longer, but that's because when I'm reading it, you know, for myself, even though I'm reading it out loud, I'm not performing, <laughs> which, which, you know, the recap is. So, so yeah. there you go. It's a bit of a performance. Uh, can we talk really quickly about how they messed up the timeline? Sure. All right. Um, this is not going to be weird to anyone in Starfleet, just as it would not be weird to cisco that he looks so much like gabriel bell because mm -hmm. once he goes and changes the past the past is changed thus pictures of gabriel bell have always looked like benjamin cisco even though they've always been someone else i would imagine all the way through starfleet academy people would be like man you you really <laughs> look like gabriel bell don't you and cisco would yeah. be like i know i always have it's the strangest <laughs> thing <laughs> Yeah. Because he's like, I'm not looking forward to explaining this to Starfleet. And Starfleet's going to be like, what? That's what Gabriel Bell looks like. You guys are, yeah, you're similar, but get out of here, you nut. <laughs> so if we're technically talking about how much the, the timeline changes, one of those situations where you have an infinite number of possibilities, an infinite number of universes. Yep. Now we're just in the one where everything's the same, except Gabriel Bell looks a lot like Benjamin Sisko, a lot more like Benjamin Sisko. I got to say, what I wonder about is... So really, all Gabriel Bell is is a name on the card, right? Yeah, at that point. Did you see Heaven Can Wait? Yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, yeah like like uh, Joe Pendleton ends up being nothing. 
He ends up being like a name on a tombstone. That's it. He was a guy who yeah. had been alive at one time, but in the end, he sort of disappears into history, disappears yeah. into uh, a Leo Farnsworth, I guess. Or no, not Leo Farnsworth. It's actually the quarterback that got hit in the Super Bowl, broke his neck, but then they bring him back to life so that Leo Farnsworth slash Joseph Pendleton can go back on the field. And then yeah. none of them really exist anymore except for this other guy. They're just gone right. now, right? Right. This is Gabriel Bell. Yeah. Because all we know about Gabriel Bell really is he rushed in to stop the ghosts from killing um, from killing Bashir and Cisco, mm -hmm. and he got killed for his trouble. That's really it. Historically, that's all we know about him. Because at that point, Cisco takes his ID card and starts acting the way history told him Gabriel Bell would act, but he's there doing it. So how do we know Gabriel Bell actually ever did anything? Mm. Yeah, it's the paradox of time travel, my friend. It'll get you every time, except for the times it doesn't. You know, well, there's, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of time travel stuff going on there anyway. And like, like I was thinking, uh, okay, you, you take uh, your number one only warship that you've got out there um, <laughs> at the border uh, there to defend everybody from the imminent attack of the Dominion, possibly just like, eh, we want to go to Earth. Sure. We, we need to go to Earth. So first of all, we're going to take that. And then when they get there, all this weird timey, wimey, wibbly wobbly stuff happens. And not only uh, is the Earth, not only do they land in a different uh, time, but, you know, the Earth uh, is rotating and uh, its position around the sun has changed. And while well, our solar system's place in the galaxy has changed and the positioning of the galaxy itself has changed in the universe. So I'm just saying that not only are they beaming through time, there's a lot of beaming around space, if I understand understand the way uh, planets and celestial bodies move to. But none of that is, you know, here nor there. Because yeah. uh, they're all just same planet, same place. We're just going to beam you down. Yeah, as much as it's a time travel story, it's not really a time travel story. No. Yeah. No, not at all. So, not at all. So don't, it's like I said in the middle of it, just don't, 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 don't you worry about why Defiant wasn't affected. Uh, right, it yeah. It wasn't, and that's fine. Yeah. Like, at one time, time travel was dangerous and really odd. It's yeah. like, you remember in Star Trek Four, the one with the whales? Yeah. Where they're like, oh, oh, no, we have to set things for time travel. Oh, are you sure we should do that? Oh, probably not. And now it's going to get weird. Yeah, but wasn't it the Enterprise incident where they actually beamed a guy out of his plane and beamed him right back into his plane? Oh no! Or was that was that Enterprise Incident or Assignment Earth? That was Enterprise Incident, wasn't it? No, uh, no. Uh, tomorrow is yesterday. Uh, whichever. Yeah. Okay. Tomorrow yeah. is yesterday. Let's yeah. let's go back in time and correct that, shall we? Yeah. So tomorrow <laughs> is yesterday is the one where that happened. and They did the thing, and you know, yeah. Time travel is time travel is exceedingly difficult, except for when they need it to not be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and now in this episode, fortunately, we get the uh, contractual obligation appearance by Quark. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> was, you know, because we talked about that at the beginning of the season, um, or at the end of last season, we said like, oh, well, Quark has to be on this uh, uh, mission to take Jake to go study flora and fauna in the Gamma Quadrant because, well, you're just gonna you're just gonna throw Quark in there, and then yeah. you, you're going to go to uh, the Gamma Quadrant for this other dangerous mission to go encounter the Dominion. Well we better get quark in there somehow now they're just like okay we'll get you on a screen yeah <laughs> we'll just, well, that's, that's, that's yeah. plenty isn't it although he was only in the first episode not the second episode yeah true yeah because yeah. yeah. that would have been horrible 
Mm-hmm. If it had ended with, uh, you know, with Quark saying, did you tell them what the Nagas wanted? And like, oh, <laughs> we forgot. And then we have to go uh-huh. back. And then at 1600, we're being burned as witches. Yeah. Hey, uh, speaking of appearances, um, do you think Clint Howard is crazy in real life? Do you, well, you know... <laughs> You know, I got I got nothing to go on. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, but boy, he brings boy he brings the crazy every time. I was a little confused. Like maybe they thought we didn't really get a clear idea of what dims were. Yeah, because I'm not sure why any of that had to happen. Except yeah, it's Clint Howard, and who doesn't love to see Clint Howard? Yeah, you got him available, and he can do that whole "I'm invisible." No, very you're not even doing it right. I'm invisible. Yeah, <laughs> very good. That's, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, and I, although, I, well, yeah. I, well, no, well, this might be better for next segment. But I kind of wish, I kind of wish we had spent. This is going to blow you away. Okay. I wish we had spent a tiny bit more time in the sanctuaries, maybe three or four episodes, because I would like mm-hmm. to know about these ghosts, and I would certainly like to know about these dims. There is something amazing about the fact that, that the Clint Howard character's level of crazy is. Because he's been ignored by society, he's invisible. That's it. And now, mm, so he's yeah. taking that and he's like, he's saying that's a power that he has. It's not just that people are ignoring him because he's, you know, the wretched refuse. It's, it's right. because he's doing that. He's like, you know, he's trying to reclaim a tiny bit of it, which of course they didn't even address it all in this episode. But that's what I found myself thinking when I was thinking about Clint Howard far too much. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sure you were. But I, I knew that you would be excited by this episode because not one, but two Bam. rules of acquisition. Bam. Two, two rules of, of acquisition. Yeah. Yes. Rule of acquisition 111. Treat people in your debt like family. Exploit them. And rule of acquisition 217. You can't free a fish from water. That actually that actually mirrors uh, one of my favorite quotes from Remains of the Day, the Edith Wharton yeah. classic Remains of the Day. I love I love I, I really love the rules of acquisition. They may be mm-hmm. one of my favorite things in Deep Space Nine. Well, two hundred something things in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, actually. yeah. Yeah. Well those are both gold. They were they were both great. They're Latinum, yeah. I think is what you meant to say, but sure. You know, I'll let sure it pass. is that too. Yeah. Um I, I'm starting to you know, I, I think back about poor Commander Sonak in a transporter accident, and I'm actually thinking that transporters have a really good safety record, except like you have to be okay with split bodies and clones and appearing at another time. Yeah. Like these are the things that I wonder if they go over in Starfleet when they're teaching you how to run the transporter because you would think that a lot of people would want to be trained on that they would need to be trained on that you know even even a guy like Kirk who clearly just went through the basics before he pushed Yeoman Rand out of the way and said uh, here let me do this right and then assures her that you know it's not her fault yeah right for all the buttons you just pushed absolutely not my fault because you were the one with the controls Captain, <laughs> right. if that is in fact your name. Speaking of which, yeah. was she still a yeoman at that point? She'd have been. No, I, I, she was a lieutenant or something. I, I would hope so, yeah. because that's yeah. Yeah, for crying out loud. She's on the big screen now. I know. Right. <laughs> Everybody gets a promotion. I think you'd think. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I thought now there's a lot to be said about the version of 2024 that we got in this episode. And of course, now as we record this episode, we are a lot closer to 2024 uh, than they were clearly when this episode of DS9 was made. Uh, for them, it was it was the far distant future. It was 30 years in the future. Yeah. And in that future, uh, tattoos were looked down upon if you're working in the business world. 
I think in 2019, as we record this, not not too much of a big deal. Some some businesses, yes. Some some corporate life, yes. I would imagine that a face tattoo right now would still be a little bit difficult for some people in business. Mm-hmm. What I didn't understand though was Brenner said he had a sleeve. Well, yeah. he's got two long sleeves and a coat right now. So right. why get that removed? He said he yeah. got it removed because you know you want the government contract. I mean, I, I will grant you their 2024 is actually a tiny bit worse than our 2019 as we record this. But does the government make you strip down to see whether or not they'll do business with you? <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess that's what he was telling us. Man, this might be, you know, th- th- these episodes might just be like have little flecks of, of depth that, that we're not even plumbing because uh, because there's throwaway lines. Like he's like, yeah, I had yeah, to get rid of the tattoo that nobody was seeing anyway because the government, am I right? <laughs> and Clint Howard walking around going, I'm invisible. Right, <laughs> right, right. Now, Jadzia has a pretty easy time ordering up a new ID and transit card. And I actually wanted to know more about that. Like, did she just fake it? Because Bashir and Cisco had no luck at all. Did she just know how to hack that system well enough? Or was she able to find, like, uh, maybe a dead person whose identity she could assume? You know, it felt like there might have been a lot more work there. She's like, yeah, I did it. Thanks for letting me use your computer. Really? Yeah. Because I'm going to go with um, white, Mm. pretty, Mm -hmm. calling from an upscale part of San Francisco. I'm willing to bet that that's pretty accurate. It's like the running man meets pretty woman. I think that that's probably yeah, yeah. Uh, about how that would go for a lot of people, um, for a lot of people today, honestly. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there is something to be said for that for sure, because, you know, one of the subtexts here is that the guys who get caught and get sent off to the sanctuary district are uh, non-white and then it is the, as you say, the pretty white, conventionally pretty woman who gets rescued by the guy and then uh, is able to to do things like get a new ID and get transit credits and mix yeah. and mingle. It would have been, it would have been uh, interesting. Well, whatever. I mean, the episode's interesting anyway. It would have been interesting to see what happened if they had all landed together. Like, had the yeah. cops picked up the three of them? Would she have been treated differently? But that would yeah. have been a uh, that would have been a bit of subtext that I don't think they were trying to address in this episode. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, as we do, uh, I'd like to address that there is some food in this episode. Uh, Julian gets some white bread, and I, were those eggs on the plate there? I think. I sure. Think so. Yeah, yeah, might as yeah. well be. I mean, I don't know if they were actual eggs, but you know, sure, they might be better than eggs. As far as the carton says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there was I mean, there was discussion of food in this episode, obviously, but there's not a lot of food to be seen. In the well, there's episode. not a lot of food to be had. I don't know if you noticed, right. but the sanctuary cities or sanctuary districts, rather, were kind of terrible. Yeah, a little grim. A little <laughs> grim. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, oh, and, and yes, uh, I left this out of trivia, but Errol Flynn, indeed, born in Tasmania uh, in the year 1909. Uh, he died in 1959. And uh, I'm not sure why BC knows or cares about that, but I, it just is a random throwaway line to justify what he wanted. I loved it. Past tense. Seems very timely. This time travel episode. Seems almost timeless. So 
there was something that Bashir said that I have found troubling in the in the few times that I've watched both of these episodes. I probably watched both of them three times getting ready for this, which is like, you know, six episodes of Star Trek, right? Or two episodes three times. That's how uh, math works. Um, Bashir said uh, that he would understand the sanctuary districts if they hated the people being kept in them, but just forgetting how to care... That he can't understand. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 two whole episodes. I understand that there are lots yeah. of lines that don't necessarily mean anything, mm-hmm. but this is like in the middle of his heartfelt monologue. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about him saying, you know, if they hated these people, I'd get it, but they don't hate them, so I don't get it. Well, now uh, let's be really specific here, because I, I think what he says is hurting people because you hate them. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't understand. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't say specifically like hurting people in sanctuary district. I think speaking to the, the larger idea here, hurting people because you hate them. Like he, he can understand, maybe not for himself, mm-hmm. but he can understand the concept. Okay, uh, person A hates person B is a very short road for them to get to the point where they are physically hurting person B, Mm -hmm. right? As opposed to person A who is simply unaware of person B, doesn't care about person B, but acts in a way that causes harm to person B. Mm -hmm. I I, I mean, look, either way is difficult to deal with. I don't I don't think what he's saying is that he he personally is okay with it or or he he gets specifically what's going on here in the sanctuary districts. I, I just think he's talking about the idea of causing harm, the idea of abuse, the idea of enacting any type of policy at any point in history where somebody has chosen other people to target, chosen to hurt people because they hate them. You know, uh, that, that's part of what we do in, uh, you know, propaganda of war is, is creating creating an enemy out of somebody and saying there's something wrong there that has to be corrected, has, has to be uh, 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 attacked, harmed, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did Kirk say? I know I'm a savage, but I choose not to kill this day. Mm-hmm. There's something. There, there was just something about the line, and I'm not saying he was saying that he was for it. I'm saying that um, in the past, uh, depictions of the 23rd and 24th century would have had us think that that was just as horrible. Here's what I'm saying: lose the line. I mean, that's really what I'm saying because I don't think Bashir is saying, "Oh no, obviously you lock up the people you hate." Mm-hmm. I'm saying it seems to me that that should have been just as horrific to Julian as the other. Uh, but then uh, there was something about. And again, it's like we talked about last segment with the, you know, I'm invisible and all that stuff. I mean, there's so much in this episode that wants to carry so much weight that it sort of feels like everything in this episode kind of has to support the weight delivered. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not looking to fault it. It was just something that kept like occurring to me every time I watched it uh, preparing for today. It it didn't bother me only because I, I thought, again, he's taking this sort of like historical perspective and to say, look, everything I know about the way humans have behaved to each other, I, it, it, even if the impulse is wrong, 
mm-hmm. hurting somebody is wrong, given. But again, it's a much shorter road to go like, oh, okay, well, for whatever reason, justifiable or not, this person hates that other person, they enact harm. Or, or through inaction, allow harm to happen. Do you feel like that's true, though? I mean... Marie Antoinette is, you know, quoted as saying, and of course, I don't know that she actually said it, but, you know, people came to the queen Mm -hmm. and said, there's no bread for the people. And she said, oh, if they don't have bread, let them eat cake. And it wasn't mean. It Mm -hmm. was, at least the way I've heard it told, just a complete lack of understanding of how things were for other people. She wasn't being cruel, necessarily, at least in those tellings, as she was ignorant of what was happening with them, which is an easy way to hurt people. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm confused. That one little thing, I mean, it, it's it's not like, well, now the episode's ruined. It's just, <laughs> it was sort of, it was it was an odd thing because so much of, of, of the messages or so many of the statements delivered in here are just, I mean, they are uh, uh, fairly bonk, bonk on the head. Well, and, and let's talk about that because what you're pointing out is in the middle of this dialogue that they're having in uh, part one that really just sets up everything that you need to know about their attitude about what's going on, therefore Star Trek's attitude about what's going on and how we hopefully as the enlightened Star Trek viewers should feel about what's going on. I I wrote down some of these, you know, it's Bashir who says that some of these people are mentally ill. They need proper medical treatment, i.e. what they not need to be is locked up in a sanctuary district. Um, Cisco, I believe Cisco says it is one uh, wanted to keep them out of sight. Again, just ignoring the problem, hoping that it goes away. And uh, Bashir says there's no need for him, referring to uh, the person that he points out as being schizophrenic, uh, no need for him to live like that. They could cure that man now, today, if they gave a damn. Cisco, of course, says the problems they face seem too enormous to deal with. Um, and that then leads into the line that uh, that you were pointing out. I mean, I, that's that's as clear as any point in these two episodes where they're just laying out exactly what's going on here and exactly not necessarily systemically what the problem is here, but laying out the problems of the attitudes of the people around them and uh, and hopefully not the problem that people face in the 24th century because we have grown past this or out of it in some way. So Cisco says that eventually people in this century will remember how to care, but it's going to take these riots partially. So that, that's, you know, it's something that happens, not the only thing that happens. It's going to take that to make things worse before they get better. And I keep thinking back to uh, First Contact because that was another thing that's worse before it gets better. So you have the Bell Riots here in 2024. You have World War III in the 2050s. And then in the 2060s, finally, you get Zephram Cochran with his uh, spacecraft and our first contact with the Vulcans. And, you know, this its not out of step. Of Star Trek to say, boy, things are going to get worse for you 20th century humans and 21st century humans. Um, uh, you go back to TOS and you've got, uh, you know, you have Khan, uh, the late 20th century strongman, uh, the genetically altered and the, these other strong men who are wreaking havoc on the world. Uh, you have references to World War Three. You have all these things that keep saying things will only get worse before they get better. Mm-hmm. Um 
And I, I, I'm not saying that that's out of the question. I'm not saying that I don't believe that. What I'm saying is I wish it weren't so easy for me to believe that, that things would get worse before they get better. Um, though I do appreciate Cisco's very strongly worded <laughs> direction to Ven to say, all you have to do is start caring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was well said. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Kirk telling Alt Spock, like, all one person has to do is create the spark. Just start to care enough. Just start to do anything. You can actually start a revolution. And hopefully we're, we're left with the idea that this is that one tragic point that had to happen in order for things to actually get better. Sure. Although, I mean, I, then do you counter that with what Lee said? Um, uh, Bashir tells her that it's not her fault that things are the way they are. And she responds by saying, everybody says that, but things never change. Yeah. So does she have some role in it, some responsibility? Absolutely, she does. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not blaming her. I'm, I'm saying I don't, I don't, where does this episode go? I guess is the question that I'm asking. I mean, because they are, well, I, I don't know how to address this stuff in this episode. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's, I mean, because everything they're presenting is terrible. Everything they're yeah. presenting is absolutely terrible. Uh, from from the complete disconnectedness of the of the <laughs> of the people who have mm-hmm. did you did you hear the joke? Sorry, this is very of the moment. Did you hear the joke that the uh, that the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture told to a bunch of farmers the other day? No. Yeah. Uh, so as we're recording this, people in the far future, 2024 and beyond, uh, there are a number of uh, things going on uh, politically that are that are hurting farmers in this country. There are a number of things going on politically that are hurting a number of people in this country. But one of them, one of the groups is the farmers and uh, the head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture speaking to a group of farmers told the joke. Uh, what do you call two farmers meeting in a basement? A wine cellar. Yeah. He told that in a room full of farmers. Yeah. So what they're showing us here with these people who are disconnected from what's really going on has been and continues to be. There's no bread. Let them eat cake. Where are we going with this in this episode? I mean, is it just a neat bit of storytelling or is it trying to wake people up into action? Tell me what we're doing here. Well, I mean, part of this, I think we're going to save for the next segment. But I mean, I I think that this is Star Trek as advocacy. It it has a it has a specific point of view in this case about uh, not just homeless, but those who are displaced. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're talking about things that are ripped from the headlines, we can also talk about people now who are separated from families because they they don't fit in one particular place or another. Right. Uh, They're not. Uh, they're not citizens of this country. They're maybe trying to leave another country, or maybe they've been here for a long time, but the the, the I's aren't dotted, the T's aren't crossed. Not every rule has been followed about being here. So now I've decided, well, this is the biggest threat that we face. We need to round these people up and remove them from the lives that they have here. Um, and and I, I realize by saying that, you know, again, that there are there is many different circumstances. There are people who are being affected by this. Um, but what Star Trek is trying to say is that 
because there are different stories for as many people as affected by this, we have to start hearing those stories and we have to decide that we're treating those people like people and not like numbers and not like game pieces to be moved around. You know, that that's look, if we look at the way that Star Trek has told us in the past, your enemy is not your enemy. You're, you know, the, the monster that tried to kill somebody isn't doing that because it's malicious. It's protecting itself because there's a story here that you need to hear about that creature's desire to protect its own family, uh, its offspring and its life. You know, this is a little bit different because this is Star Trek not saying the enemy is not your enemy. This is Star Trek saying, damn it, the people who live next to you are not your enemy. The people who are just like you by virtue of being earthlings from the same place who share the, the same biology as you, who have the, the same needs and wants and desires as you, they are not your enemy either. And it's so easy to paint with a broad brush to say that, well, we're okay, but there's something wrong with this other group. That other group, they're not motivated enough. That other group is lazy. That other group isn't where they should be, where I would like them to be when I would like them to be there. And I, I think this is very effective at putting a human face on that problem. Look, I'm as guilty as anybody. I live in Los Angeles where the homeless population is astounding. I've lived in other big cities. I lived in New York. I lived in Chicago. Saw homeless people there, too. Not to the level that I've seen here. But I'm as guilty as anyone as driving through that or walking past that and going, oh, that's too bad. This is, this is such a shame. I, I wish that something could be done about this. You know, unfortunately, there are people who are working very hard to do something about it, who are actually trying to see people who are displaced as humans who, who are in need of something. Um, but it is very easy to think of it as somebody else's problem and think of those people as Think of those people as as something other than than ourselves. With the Bell Riots in Deep Space Nine's past, it is time to see what we can take from past tense. I'm going to give you just a moment, Mr. Champion. Maybe you should. That was a lot. That was a lot in the last yeah. segment. Uh, and I will remind people what we're doing in this segment. This is the part of the episode where we talk about the messages, morals, and meanings of a given episode and see whether the whole thing holds up today. Uh, the episodes, of course, uh, right now being uh, past tense, parts one and parts two. Uh, still giving you a minute. I'm going to go ahead and lead off with whether I think this episode holds up. I think you should. All right. To me, this episode does exactly what people want DS9 to do. It poses questions, and and this is where I'm going to have a tiny bit of a problem with this episode. I like this episode. It's a good episode. It's an important episode. It poses questions, and it doesn't give answers, aside from, you know, care, which is not a bad thing. It's weird to me, though, that, that has to be a message that Star Trek delivers. As, as they head back to Deep Space Nine, Bashir wonders how people in the 21st century could have let things get so bad. 
And Cisco replies, I don't know. I wish we had an answer. And I'm thinking just in this episode, we've been told the answers. There was a lack of empathy when when Cisco says to Vin, start to care. Um, there's greed. I mean, uh, 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 Brenner's uh, troop is fine, and they're especially happy with the sanctuary cities because they don't have to see the people who aren't fine. Um, and, of course, you could talk about manufactured scarcity of the whole thing. How about replacing jobs with automation without accounting for what's going to happen to the workers being displaced, which is something that we're seeing today and something they talked about. One of the guys who gave his speech on the net was a guy who, who, came to, uh, who came to San Francisco. He worked in a brewery, but they got, uh, they got new, uh, new equipment, so he was knocked out of a job. Everything that this episode says is true, and, and it's important, and, and I wish that at the end we had gone just a little bit more bonk-bonk on the head. Because having been down in it, having been a victim of it, at the end of it, Cisco says, I, I don't know how things got that bad. Well, sure he does. And, and Dax does. And the thing is, we do as well. We as viewers know this. We as Star Trek fans know this. Theoretically, we as people just walking around know this. And, and, and these are great episodes. They are well acted. They, they provide an interesting look at the, at the near future, uh, much more near now than, uh, than it was before. And, and I wish they had brought out the mallet. I wish they had brought out the mallet and gone a little bit more bonk, bonk on the head. Otherwise, it's a fantastic episode, I think. And yes, I do think it holds up. Um, tell me about you. Uh, well, I'll start with the fun stuff <laughs> first. Okay. I mean, seeing anything uh, that is from the past that is about the future, and that future <sighs> happens to be where you are now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's always fun for the things they got right and the things they got wrong, and the the style and technology of the episode is interesting. Yeah, they they had the net. And they log on to the net. I mean, at least they didn't call it like Cyber World or something like that. Um, <laughs> CompuServe or something right, stupid. Right, exactly. Hey, get your eWorld name <laughs> and log in. <laughs> um, you know, the design is stuff like the, the computer and phone terminals are a bit over-designed compared to what we really have, but that's okay. And, of course, we have screens everywhere now. And, and in this, there was a lot of hardware you know, attached to screens. Uh, the, the styles are weird, kind of Victorian hmm. when you have the haves. Um, I don't know, dude. It was just a few years ago that I was seeing people walking around with uh, handlebar mustaches riding on tall bicycles. Yeah, but isn't that movement kind of dead now? Like that—that that was the hipster mo moment. So you're you saying know? you're saying Deep Space Nine was actually five to seven years too early. Exactly. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, hard to fault yeah. them for that. And they should have been in Brooklyn at a coffee shop. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. That, I, that, dude, I haven't been is. to Brooklyn in over 10 years, and I'm telling you, I saw those things, man. I saw okay. them. <laughs> um, and the storytelling, I think, is interesting. You know, you have big parallels in my mind. I immediately think of City on the Edge of Forever. You have the time travel paradox. You have the foreknowledge of who needs to live and who needs to die and what needs to happen for history to correct itself. Um, you have the, the backdrop of a serious political slash social movement. Um, we're a little sloppy in this one with the setup and resolution. I guess in City on the Edge, 
we we kind of accepted like this is an alien technology we don't get it it's just there it does this thing and now we're like well there's chronotrons and and now that affected us but not them but we're okay but starfleet's gone a little like marty mcfly's photo of the family disappearing you know thought about that too um so that that was all well and good. Uh, but I, I feel like as an episode or as a combination of episodes here, it felt like vintage Star Trek. And overall, it's very good. It's not perfect. You know, they, they particularly resolve the time travel thing just super fast. And they're trying to milk those scenes of uh, O'Brien and Kira beaming down for a little bit of comedy, which is all right. It, it wasn't... It was neither great comedy, nor was it really uh, uh, an interesting scene. It was just like, oh, okay, well, we got a couple of minutes to kill with these two. So we're going to do the 1920s scene and the 1960s scene. Um, But I feel like this is one of those occasions. You know, you say you're missing the bonk bonk on the head moment. This is Star Trek reaching through the TV and grabbing you by the collar and trying to be an advocate for something even if maybe you feel at the end of the day, it's a little bit vague. Cisco has great moments, especially in that hostage situation. Um, I kept trying to think of who we are in the episode as the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, are, are, are we meant to identify with the people of 21st century Earth? Are we, we meant to, you know, of course, we look to Cisco as being the heroic one here, putting his life on the line to do what's right. Or, or maybe we're more like Bashir, just looking around, wondering how it all got so bad. Um, so I think that's another way to examine this episode. But I, I, I think... You know, I, I think at the end of the day, what it's trying to say, what it's trying to advocate for is summed up well by what Bashir says in that conversation with Cisco. If we are frightened enough, if we are desperate enough, would we stay true to our ideals? And yeah, he's saying that about his position coming from the 24th century, having a relatively easy time compared to what he's seeing here in the 21st century. But the thoughts in the back of his head, what what happens if push comes to shove, if the situation is so desperate that I don't get to live up to the ideal that I've set for myself. But at the same time, I think that's a message telegraphed directly to the audience to say, You sitting at home, you're not okay with people who are disenfranchised, who are homeless, who are given up on by the rest of society. You're not okay with that, are you? Your ideals say that you have compassion, you have empathy, and you actually want to do something for those people because we're all affected by it. So... By showing some compassion, by showing some empathy, by actually working for this, you could actually affect something. You could actually affect some change. I think those messages are in there. I, I think, you know, look, I agree with you. There's not a roadmap here. There, there's not the, the return at the end of the episode to the bonk bonk on the head to say, here's what you have to do. But I, to me, those moments come through pretty loud and clear to say that either we are complacent or we are uncaring or we are unaware uh but surely we can't be that unaware 
that we can't do something to start seeing people who are less advantaged as being people who are worthy of attention and rights and dignity and humanity. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Have you checked out all the shows on the Roddenberry Podcast Network, like Mission Log, Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, Shabam, and your daily Star Trek news? Seriously, so many shows, we're going to have to stop listing them all pretty soon. Podcast.roddenberry.com is the place to check them all out and see what comes along. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, that'd be great. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, life support. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Ripped from the headlines in the 1990s and today. Maybe humans could work on not needing these headlines. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network